Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to Episode 9 of Unknown Orbits. I'm Steve Reitze. And I'm Patrick Baird. Today we're going to be talking about a story by Harry Stein, and it's called Galactic Gadgeteers. It's actually a very old favorite. It's probably one of the first short stories in the pulps that I would reread on occasion. It was published in the May 1951 issue of Astounding Science Fiction. It is also one of the very first stories that I started categorizing in my own personal kind of categorization of things. I think we've talked about it before. This is men solving a problem. It's reminiscent of Flight of the Phoenix, which I believe you enjoy as much as I do. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. The original Jimmy Stewart with a cast of every great character actor of the 1960s. One of my favorite movies of all time. Mine as well. So the plot of this story is that there's a spaceship of men. They're patrolling a war zone. And while nothing in particular is happening, two of the engineers on the ship start having an argument and they end up having a contest to develop different technological objects. Impossible technological advancements. Yes, and by the end of the story, the two engineers have to cooperate in order to create a new super weapon that allows them to win the war. One thing that's amusing about these completely impossible objects, one is still impossible, a transmitter that can transmit directly to Earth from many light years away. The other was a square wave oscillator. Now, if you're not familiar with it, I'm sure everyone has seen a sine wave, like at the beginning of Outer Limits. Yes. A square wave oscillator is that, but instead of nice rounded waves, they would be perfectly square, which when you're using vacuum tube technology, it's utterly impossible. What I find amusing is that within a couple of years of the story being published, they had transistors out there that made the creation of a square wave oscillator trivial. And I I can remember specifically from my Navy basic electronics training, operating an oscilloscope and having a square wave on the oscilloscope. We also studied vacuum tubes, which even at that point, in the mid-1970s, were pretty much obsolete. But the idea was, as a Navy electrician, theoretically, you might have to repair or maintain any sort of electrical equipment, even stuff that might have been left over from World War II. Because at that time, that was a possibility that there might be some Korean War or World War II era electronic or electrical equipment still in use on a Navy ship somewhere. That was the argument in favor of learning how to deal with vacuum tubes. But it was literally only shipboard electricians like myself were the only ones that took that particular module in the entire Navy. Basically the jack of all trades. 
because the expectation was that the land-based electronics technicians would not run into vacuum tubes, but ship-based might. Right, because you're talking, there were still ships that were commissioned in World War II in service in the Navy in the mid-1970s. The Shitty Kitty, the Kitty Hawk, I believe that was commissioned at the end of World War II. That one, I actually was on the Shitty Kitty once. I went to go pick up a rebuilt motor. So I've actually been on that aircraft carrier. So somewhere in the vastness of that gigantic aircraft carrier, there was probably a small handful of vacuum tubes somewhere, even at that point in time. To this day, there are switching networks in the New York subway that use vacuum tubes. Edison era, old style, giant vacuum tubes. Oh, yeah. I've seen there were vacuum tubes that were like several feet long, enormous vacuum tubes. I never ran across any of them. All the ones that I ever saw, you know, the size of a ping pong ball, the size of a oven light, something that big or smaller. Apparently, analog transmitters for radios use giant vacuum tubes. I never bothered asking why. Sitting here now, I'm guessing it's because they're manipulating such high currents that yes. it's better to use vacuum. Yeah. Right. Right. And and they they were capable of, of handling high current. That was one of the brief glory days of vacuum tubes. That was one of the reasons why they were used, was because they could handle high currents. As much as I remember from my training, oh. to be honest with you. Now, I, I would like to spoil the story. I would like to give the entire plot. You know, and... I, don't, I don't think it's one of those twisty kind of plots that you really have to worry about spoiling. And you know what? Even if you know the ending... It's a fun story to read. So the rest of the plot is these two engineers are tearing up the ship, trying to create their two different devices. The ship has landed on a planet that had some exotic minerals, and they end up with a bag full of iron crystals. Is which, that even a real thing, by the way? I'm sure it's possible, but I doubt if it exists <laughs> naturally on Earth. That seemed like a MacGuffin to me. Oh, Absolutely. A bag of these things are left on top of the transmitter that the guy is trying to build to reach Earth. And one of them happens to fall into the innards. And the ship goes crazy. All the electronics in the ship go zany. So they figure out why that's happening. And that's the source of their weapon. However, how do they trigger this weapon without disabling themselves? That's where the square wave oscillator comes into play. If you just imagine in your head, the square waves up and down, they set all their power sources to be on during the top half of the cycle and off during the bottom half so that their electronic disrupting super weapon is operating during the lower half. So it's not on when the ship is on. And that's how they can go up to these enemy ships, turn on the effect, they're not affected, but the ship is affected. I found the punchline really interesting. In the story, the military took all these kind of misfit geniuses and put them on the same ship to to see what would happen. And there they get a super weapon out of it. Yeah, I don't know if that was the intention. I had a couple of issues with this story. I, I will admit, it was a fast-paced 
action-packed story. I could see where, when you were younger, you probably found this to be a very entertaining and enjoyable story. You know, I, I was able to get through it without too much trouble. But the denouement you talk about, where they, they bring the two misfit geniuses together to build the super weapon using both of their inventions, the actual climax of the story where they defeat the enemy was fairly exciting, fairly well-written. And then there's like five more pages of them going <laughs> back to headquarters and doing this thing where they create the ultimate weapon. That was a terrible way to end the story. It took all the air right out of the story and forced you to have to read through all this boring text that really didn't lead anywhere terribly exciting. So I thought the ending was terrible. I can say something about that. But like we saw in Elamagusa, part of the story involved the military bureaucracy. Yes, very and I, much. And I think the writers in the early 1950s had had a taste for the military bureaucracy and they incorporated it into their stories. Well, and I'm glad that you said that because that leads into my one of my next points. And that is that I checked and as far as I could tell, Harry Stein never had any military service. He did go to a military school as a young man, the New Mexico Military Institute. I don't know if he was a problem child and his parents were like, we're sending you off to military school. We're done with your crap. I don't know. So he did go to a military school. He did wind up working for the White Sands testing lab, literally a rocket scientist. So he was very definitely in that military bureaucracy as a civilian but he had no military service as far as I could tell. And it shows because this is a great example of someone who doesn't know what serving in the military was like writing a story about people in the military. One of the other things that drove me nuts about this story is the fact that literally every line of dialogue is either wisecracks or people just yelling at each other. That doesn't happen in the military. People don't yell at each other all the time in the military. People don't yell at each other all that often in the military. That's fairly unusual that you that you yell at someone. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I lost my temper and yelled at someone in the military in four years in the Navy. It's because you get in trouble for yelling at people. And here's the thing. They start the story out saying, this is one of the most misfit ships in the Navy. It's one of the most bunch of undisciplined whatever. And I immediately thought, well, you know, I was actually on a ship like that. My ship that I was stationed on in the Navy was a reserve minesweeper. And it was, as one petty officer told me one day when he was yelling at me, and yes, there was yelling. He was yelling at me because I had turned in a bunch of movies like three days late. So he's yelling at me and he goes, where are you from? And I told him the name of my ship. And he goes, oh, well, that makes sense. Fucking McHale's Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's what we, I was kind of in McHale's Navy, but it was nothing like what he shows in the story where people are just yelling at each other all the time. There's no respect for command structure. Nobody on our ship would have ever yelled at our commanding officer unless they wanted to go right straight to the brig. That never happened. The only time something like that would happen is someone was mentally deranged and lost control of themselves. You know, you had it drilled into you starting a boot camp that you do not raise your voice or talk back to higher levels of command. And that's all over the place in this 
story. That kind of bugged me. Maybe it's the same kind of thing when the author is trying to write casual conversation between people. He's basically a rocket scientist, and I'm sure during wartime, he spent most of his time with other rocket scientists and not getting out much. Because I found <laughs> what was supposed to be the casual, cool conversation between people a little annoying. A real unfortunate use of what I would call enthusiastic jargon for the future. You've cracked your jet linings and cool your tubes. In that section of the story, I really felt like I was reading a Heinlein juvenile. Yeah, that was very much a carryover from the 1930s when that level of writing was, was common. And it's surprising to me. Well, it's surprising and not surprising. It's surprising to me that in 1951, that was still acceptable in astounding science fiction. But considering the fact the story was all about vacuum tubes and square sine waves, that's exactly the sort of story John W. Campbell would fall in love with. So I'm sure that even though it was really not very, very up to date in terms of his style, it fit right into what Campbell at that point still wanted in his stories. And as you pointed out, this guy was a rocket scientist living and working with other rocket scientists. So he was probably a nerd among nerds among nerds and probably had no grip at all on what actual cool slang was. Yes. Um, so he had to invent things like, you've cracked your jet linings. Yes. <laughs> We've covered the major points of the story. Let's move on to why I like this story, why I categorize it the way it is. It's men solving a problem. In my mind, that is a cozy situation. Like a cozy mystery? Yes. It's self-contained. You're not really worried too much about outside influences coming in. It's just this very small world situation that you're watching come to a, a conclusion. That's what I call a cozy. And in this case, that would be a men solving a problem. I mean, look at Flight of the Phoenix. Three quarters of the movie takes place within, you know, a 50-foot circle of desert. That's right. a cozy. That's a that's a really great point. Uh, I, I would never have thought about it that way, but you're right. What defines a cozy mystery? It's a small story, a small mystery in a small area. It takes place in a little village somewhere out in the country. It's not horrible, gruesome murder. It's, you know, someone made off with the deacon's bicycle. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, not a big reader of cozy mysteries, but I can see exactly what you're saying, that there's something to be said for having a discrete problem that has to be solved by the end of the story set in a limited universe, in a limited space, and... As I've said before, I love any kind of a story that gives me guardrails, that puts limitations on me as a writer where I can go. I could see we're writing a story like this where you've got a handful of guys on a spaceship facing a particular problem, which the bigger problem in this case is they're going up against hopeless odds against they're constantly going up against hopeless odds against these enemy spaceships and you know, they're getting their butts kicked every single time that they encounter them. So they need a Hail Mary pass. They need a miracle. It, it occurs and it leads them not only to 
handle their own individual situation, but they dive right into the, the main formation of the enemy and completely disrupt the enemy formation so all the other ships can jump in and take them out. So, yeah, that's a great model. It's actually kind of given me a thought. Maybe this is a sort of short story that I should think about trying to write. Try to come up with a little gimmick and build a little cozy story around it. Writing is not creating great art. Writing is crank that out, get that story done, and send it out. It certainly would have been the case in 1951. A bit of a tangent. When I used to collect science fiction magazines, it was sometimes fun reading some of the, like, tertiary and what's 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 the word for fourth level? Uh, qu quadruary science <laughs> fiction stories where they get the stories that were rejected by the tertiary magazines. There's a uh, descending valley that, that stories tend to fall into. And, you know, there's the penny a page or half a penny a word magazines way down at the bottom. Was Hugo Gernsback still around in 1951? If he was, he would have been publishing some crappy science fiction magazine that paid half a penny a word. My father wrote, and in going through his estate, there was... One story that he clearly wrote for, like, Alfred Hitchcock didn't sell to them. And then it went to the men's magazines. didn't sell there. Then he reworked it. And when I say reworked, if you have a story that's been rejected several times, you're not going to rewrite the story. You're going to pull some paragraphs, but you're not going to put a lot change, of effort. Change the location from Vietnam to Egypt. Yeah. Or throw in a sex scene or... Yeah, because at this point, you're trying to sell it to the men's magazine, Sex in Egypt. So yeah. you do that. You and know, they're going to they're gonna have a they're gonna have a special issue coming up in six months in November where they've, they've got like two, uh, they're, they're, they've already got the cover painting of some swarthy uh, Middle Eastern guy grappling with a half-naked woman and, you know, dude with a 45 and his shirt's all torn off. <laughs> and, you know, they've already got the cover painted. And it's like they've got room for one more story, but it has to be something about the Middle East. Yes. So this story ended up selling to a newspaper syndication for a flat 10 bucks. Wow. Another story about men solving a problem is one that we might talk about later anyway. It's long been among my list of favorite science fiction stories. It's called Mother of Invention by Tom Godwin. And that involved a spaceship trapped on a planet and the sun is about to go nova. So that's that's another kind of cozy where the men have to solve a problem. If the name Tom Godwin is familiar, I assume it is to you. It is. I'm familiar with his famous story, The Cold Equations, which is one of the greatest science fiction stories. One of my favorite short stories of all time. Yes, and early on, I think I unintentionally ripped it off completely. I wanted to write a story about someone who was brilliant and had all this great help over the radio, but the universe was against him, and there was no way he was going to win. The first comment I got back on this story was, it's a pretty good story. It would be better if cold equations had never been written. <laughs> that's that, That's like that's, I think I've mentioned this before. I completely rewrote Pickman's model at one point by H.P. Lovecraft without realizing it when I was like 14 years old. It happens, you know. But 
I would put that story up there with anything. It's it's one of my favorites, absolutely. Have you ever thrown away an idea because you suddenly weren't sure if you thought it up or had read it? Yes, I have. You know, I start getting an idea and I, it starts percolating in my head. And then something in the back of my mind is like a little alarm bell goes off somewhere. And it's like, this seems way too familiar. And then I kind of put the brakes on it and let it sit in the hopes that somewhere down the line, I remember what it was it was ripping off or what it was similar to. Because if you can figure out what it's similar to, then you can take that idea and say, okay, well, it's similar to this idea, but how can I change it just enough to make it not be a complete ripoff? You know, then, then you can work with it. But if you don't know where you're unconsciously ripping it off from, you're running the risk of doing what I did when I was 14 years old and completely plagiarizing H.P. Lovecraft. Well, one of the problems can be like in humor, because I, I write a lot of humor, is you hear someone else's poorly done idea and then you improve on it. And a little bit later, you start doubting what was the improvement and what was the original I can't remember. Right. I wouldn't proceed with an idea like that until I figured out what is it that I'm I'm unconsciously ripping off? Now, I believe you looked into Harry Stein a little bit more than me because I didn't know he was an actual rocket scientist. Yeah, I have, I have one little side note about Harry Stein that brought back very happy memories for me from my childhood. So, as I said, he was literally a rocket scientist working for the government at White Sands Rocket Testing Ground. So at one point in the late 1950s, he created a company that built model rockets. Now, the company failed, and he wound up at least working tangentially with Vern Estes of Estes Rockets, which was a highly successful model rocket company starting in 1958. So I had a, quite a bit of experience in my childhood with Estes Rockets. I lived in a very small town in Wisconsin called Salem, which anybody from the Kenosha area will know where that is. It was literally an unincorporated town, a very small town. And yet, for some weird reason, we had like a hobby shop in town. And that hobby shop sold Estes Rockets. And more specifically, they sold Estes Rocket Motors. Now, for those of you who are too young to remember, and I believe Estes Rockets is still around. They got bought out by a big giant company at some point. What an Estes Rocket was, the very most basic Estes Rocket, which is called the Alpha, cost, you know, in 1969, 1970, cost a dollar and a quarter. And all it was was a cardboard tube, and you would glue balsa wood fins onto the cardboard tube, and on the bottom end, you would insert the rocket motor, which was another cardboard tube packed with dry rocket propellant. And then on the top, you had a balsa wood nose cone that had a parachute attached to it. You would put that on the top of the cardboard tube, and then you would run an electrical wire to a switch, which is hooked up to a battery. You'd throw the switch, the current would ignite the rocket fuel, and the little balsa wood and cardboard 
rocket would shoot 50, 80 feet in the air. And if everything worked right, the little charge at the top of the rocket motor would fire. It would eject the parachute and the whole thing would float gently back down to Earth. And you could put it all back together and fire it off again with another rocket motor. So that's basically how Estes rockets work. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but they had four sizes, A through D. Alpha, the Beta, the Charlie, and the Delta. The A was about the circumference of a nickel. The Delta was like a dollar, like a silver dollar. At the time, the only thing the Deltas, the big ones, were used for is they had a mock-up of the Saturn V rocket that launched men to the moon. And that was way beyond my budget to purchase one of those things. It was a multi-stage rocket. So you had three of these giant Delta rocket motors in the bottom stage that would fire it off the ground. And then another one would fire the second stage and then the third stage. And they would all come back down to earth with their parachutes. But the really interesting thing, (laughs) the really interesting thing about my childhood is that the motors themselves were like 50 cents. I had an allowance of like a quarter a week at the time. So it wasn't too hard to save up to go buy yourself one or two rocket motors. And oh boy, was there a lot of fun things that you could do with a rocket motor. I'm going to interrupt and tell you right now. In my childhood, my brother and I bought a lot of rocket motors and we never owned a rocket. Yes. I would say that I probably must have bought... 20 rocket motors in my childhood and only launched like two or three actual rockets with those rocket motors. I found other things to do with the rocket motors, including taking a heavy metal die cast car, putting a rocket motor at the rear of it, sticking a fuse from a firecracker into it, lighting it and running away and watching it go head over heels down the street at like 80 miles an hour. I'm going to tell you, the apex of our experimentation was taking a a larger, one of the larger ones, I, I forget the letter, imagine a marker, a highlighter, and we taped it to the flatbed car of an HL railroad car. Mm-hmm. and put it on a long stretch of straight track with a Lego house at the end. And then we set that off, and it goes zooming down the track, smashes into the house, destroys God. it. Everything's going all over the place. And the only... <laughs> we should not have done it in the attic. <laughs> That's exactly the sort of thing that we would be doing, potentially burning our houses down with yes. rocket motors. My, my favorite thing we ever did, we actually scraped together enough money to buy an, a full alpha rocket for a dollar and a quarter. So we, we took the, instead of the parachute, the compartment where the parachute goes in, we, f- we bought a whole bunch of firecrackers and we filled it with match heads and black powder from the firecrackers so that when we launched the rocket, it shot 50 feet in the air. And instead of the charge ejecting the parachute, it blew up the rocket about 50 <laughs> feet in the air. And that was pretty cool. That was probably the highlight of our rocket experimentation that we did. But, you know, and Mr. Stein, he was the founder of the National Association of Rocketry. He wrote the Handbook of Model Rocketry in 1965. Really? I'm sure that. I violated every rule he ever promulgated in the handbook of model rocketry. But, you know, he was the kind of man who was a whole generation of us kids 
he 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 passed on the enthusiasm for rocketry to us. And I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to Vernon Estes for, for having done that because that was a great part of my childhood. And, and thankfully, me or none of my friends lost any fingers or were blinded or uh, had their little sisters terrorized or anything like that. So, you know, knock on wood, things turned out pretty good for me. Well, now I'm really hoping that in a future episode, we have a reason for me to discuss what my brother and I used to do with balsa wood model airplanes. I probably have a few stories to add to that as well. <laughs> but we'll just have to wait till the appropriate segment comes along. Next episode, you're taking the lead. Would you like to discuss what that topic is going to be? So next week, I will be talking about Armageddon 2419 AD, the first appearance of Buck Rogers and his impact on culture and science fiction. I guess that's it for episode nine. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Steve Reitze. And I'm Patrick Barrett. Keep watching the stars. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.